This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Environmental Finance Center Network's podcast series about all the different aspects of wastewater treatment. I am AJ Barney, and I'm a research engineer with the Southwest Environmental Finance Center at the University of New Mexico. This is a multi-part series about wastewater treatment, where we are following a typical wastewater treatment process from beginning to end. If this is your first time with us, check out the earlier podcasts, and we hope you will join us again for the rest of the series. Today, we are joined by data analyst and enforcement coordinator, Ben Zimmerman with the Albuquerque Water Authority to talk about EPA regulations and MPDES permit requirements. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Hey, greetings all. Doing well, thanks. Happy New Year. Awesome, glad to hear it. So are you ready to talk about EPA regulations today? Uh, Did you have any questions before we start? Let's dive in. Okay, so first of all, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background um, and some of the stuff that interests you in wastewater compliance? Uh, been a naturalist since I was a little boy and, uh, you know, went to school uh, for biology and was trying to figure out where to put myself on this planet. And um, after working a bunch of different temp jobs and applying to many um, entities, I got a call back from the wastewater treatment plant, which was the city of the Albuquerque at the time. And um, I started in the NPDS program in 2007. And so uh, start from the bottom rung in the NPDS pro- uh, program up to where I'm at today. Awesome. Um, so it sounds like you, know, you got a lot of experience. What do you currently do at the Water Authority? I'm currently, as a data analyst and enforcement coordinator, I'm looking at wastewater data for both influent effluent of the wastewater treatment plant. I look at industrial users' data. Um, I look at reuse data. I look at groundwater discharge data. And um, a lot of that leads into reporting mechanisms for enforcement, either our permits or we regulate industries or point sources of pollution ourselves. And so uh, 15 years in, I look at a lot of data and look at uh, basically water quality in wastewater. Awesome. So that data, it sounds like it gets reported for the different permits. I think that's a good point where we can talk about uh, what exactly, would you tell us what exactly an MPDS permit is? And maybe just real quick, what MPDS stands for? Um, The NPDS permit is a, a, a federally held permit. So we report directly to the federal government. In this case, sometimes those NPDS permits are held by the state, but not in New Mexico. And um, it's the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System um, permit, uh, which specifically looks at your effluent to a receiving body of water, or um, it could be a dry uh, arroyo too, but in our case, it's the Rio Grande. Okay. Um, and can you tell us a little bit 
like history of the MPDS permits, how those came about, um, what's kind of the goal? Uh, I, I think in short, uh, without, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of dates, you know, we can go back into the 70s, late 60s and look at how waterways were being impacted across the United States. Uh, this was really part of climate justice movement um, and the civil rights movement coming out of the 60s. So in the 1970s and early 80s, um, Clean Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, the NPDS program, uh, a lot of the uh, startup happened, you know, by some pretty brilliant folks, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it is carried through and morphed over the last, what, 40 years, 60 years of these programs. Um, they're a little different today. Uh, than they were then. Um, but the end result is, is that, you know, a lot of our waterways, our lakes, um, major water sources for both drinking water, um, uh, agriculture and transportation have now been relatively cleaned up. I mean, considerably con compared to where they were at after the industrial revolution. And so, you know, there was, you know, a hundred years of pollution leading up to these programs being implemented. So pretty radical at the time. Yeah, I would say so. What kind of um, pollution are we looking for? And who is, um, who do these MPDS permits pertain to? I, I mean, it's, it's uh, based on a number of criteria from what your flow rate is into the river. Um, we're at 47 million gallons per day. It could be based on potential risk. Um, and so it's it's really looking at impact assessment. You know what what does your wastewater treatment plant? What does your industry uh, contribute to the environment? And it's a proportional relationship to the waterways um, as well as risk. I mean, obviously, you could be creating something that has a byproduct that could kill potentially kill everything unless you had some sort of regulation to uh, look at, limit, and control your pollution mechanisms. So. What are some of those pollutants that uh, can kill and what exactly are, is being killed um, in the environment? Uh, I, you know, I mean, a lot of these are these lists are long and you have some naturally occurring elements that are used in society. These could be heavy metals, um, petroleum products, uh, animal and fat oils, um, organic chemicals that have been extracted. And you also have synthetics that can uh uh, even have a, a greater impact possibly because they just don't break down naturally. But I mean, the whole spectrum of metals to organics, inorganics, um, there is a very long list of priority pollutants that is in the CFR uh, that you can, you must screen for periodically, uh, both at point source and whether you're the point source or you're talking about industry and um you know, you, you look at those lists, you know, detects, you know, non-detect versus detect to start. Then you start looking at uh, quantification and qualification is, uh, is it there and how much? And, and then you try to decide if it's a problem. Okay. And is, um, you work at the Southwest Reclamation Plan, Albuquerque. Um, are there any monitoring requirements that you think are unique to your site that uh, would differ from other places or uh, stuff that's unique to the Southwest? I don't necessarily think that we have um, 
any particular pollutant that's unique to the Southwest or Albuquerque. I, I think priority pollutants in general, which is the list in CFR, um, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You can find it in almost every uh, location and um, every city every, from small to big across the United States. And so um, we may have some pollutants that may stick out uh, in the Southwest. Arsenic could be one of them where you have naturally occurring elements that uh, wind up um, being, being in concentrations because of groundwater, depending on what your point source is for drinking water, whether that's surface water or groundwater, groundwater, obviously you're pulling, you could be pulling arsenic from wells. And in Albuquerque's case, they do a lot of uh, arsenic removal. Um, so there's technological advances in place to remove arsenic. So yes, you could have specific pollutants that are unique to your environment that may be in source water, but generally speaking, what is created and discharged from your community uh, is highly variable and probably consistent across the board. You know, you look at pharmaceuticals and, and care products, and that's you know one of those items that you have at every store available to every consumer. Yeah, so it sounds like the domestic water um, a lot of times will be similar, um, except based on you know maybe the drinking water source. But what about the different kind of industries that a town might have? How does that affect the wastewater and how it needs to, and how the, it affects the permit? I mean, you have the military industrial complex uh, here in Albuquerque, and I mean at this point in our wastewater discharge, um, we're not finding anything that. Uh, stands out and and makes it problematic, but you know they've had the fuel spill on Kirtland Air Force Base, which is in groundwater. Um, so I mean, I think when you have long-standing industry, you could have some um, a lot of legacy materials that have built up over the last century, um, and then we have a lot of micro industry that's grown up around military industrial complex. So for us, we have that complexity and density that other cities may not have, but there are um, a lot of programs that are similar to ours in scale and complexities. And of course there are programs that are much smaller where you only have a dairy farm. Um, so, you know, you really have to evaluate those point sources and look at what their possible risk is and legacy uh, contaminants versus current contaminants. And, and that's part of your NPDES program to make those evaluations. So, but my experience is here. So, okay. Is there anything in place uh, to kind of mitigate those extra risks from industries? Um, I mean, you're going to do point source sampling and you're going to try to evaluate their wastewater profile and determine if there are detects for pollutants of concern that you know could bypass your plant or interfere with your biological community or short circuit your plant. Um, so you have to be aware of those toxic toxins coming into your plant. Uh, you know, smaller the plant you are, the greater risk of upset. Um, so I think a lot of that comes down to site research and understanding that wastewater profile. You know, don't assume anything. Uh, it's, it's taking samples, grabs, composites, what have you, and trying to get a, um, a baseline um, 
survey. You know, you need a baseline to determine what's going on. Okay. So yeah, you mentioned the sampling, the grabs. So that's how monitoring is performed. Would you give us a kind of like a basic idea how monitoring occurs at, uh, for the MPDS permit? Um, at plant or at industry? At the plant. Um, well, I mean, we, so we have a wastewater treatment plant and you have your preliminary treatment, you know, um, and here we have, uh, aeration basins and we have digesters um and secondary uh and then we go to disinfection um and so you're going to look at your percent removals you know what comes into your plant what's leaving your plant looking at your efficiencies um you're probably daily sampling influent to effluent um your process sampling should give you indicators on your uh, performance expectation um most plants are probably composites with some grabs relating to certain pollutants that, uh, whether it's volatiles, uh, oil and grease, um, maybe some uh, phenols or cyanides, you take grabs. Um, but most other pollutants are going to be a composite. So, you know, you're setting up a, a monitoring station, you're putting up your samplers, understanding how to program them, understanding your the bottles that you may need understanding the laboratory services that you'll have to employ if you do not have your own, understand your turnaround times, you know, when you get your sample, how long does it take for analysis, when do you get a result back, and under, and use that to determine how, how it fits into your reporting mechanism. So um, for most plants, is a day-to-day -day sampling, and you're looking at your effluent quality to your receiving body of water. And how are those procedures established? Um, is it kind of just based on the permit that you have, or are there other um, resources out there? Well, there are other resources. And so uh, once you understand what you should sample for, which uh, comes off your priority pollutant list or your permit itself, um, then you can launch into uh, EPA standard methods or standard methods themselves. Um, there are books, resources, that you can go look up your pollutants, the associated methods. Um, they talk about collection, preservation, storage. Um, and then they go even to lab, bench lab, you know, your analytical lab methods as well on how to um, analyze. That could be your holding time, um, uh, how you digest it, how you desiccate it, try it out. So I think that not only does the internet have uh, resources where you can look up specific methods and pollutants, but uh, you can actually order books that you can have at your uh, desk side, so to speak, and and mark them up. You know, highlight what you need, start bookmarking them, and you can come up with a, a plan which you can then put in writing yourself, which is a sampling plan, um, essentially, so you can have a procedure, an SOP, on how to proceed in the field, proceed in the lab proceed in transport, um, which you can use to decide whether your results are valid and you can use them. And so do those standard methods, um, are they what verify that samples are valid? How does that work? It's one part of it. Uh, I mean, if you don't do it right in the field, um, then, you know, the rest of your process could be voided. And so, um, you know, it's step A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, G is your final product, so to speak. And so um, you need proper field collection. 
proper preservation, um, your hold time. So some samples, you got a couple of days to do this formaldehyde, a couple of days to do this and you run out of time. Um, and then the labs have the same criteria. And so if any one of those steps gets broken or your chain of custody, then really your validity is out the window and you're best off just resampling. Um, if you are uh, held to a very limited sample frame and timeline and you, um, uh, then you best adhere to your sample plan so you, you don't get caught in a situation where you didn't get your sampling done. But, you know, more samples, the better to cover, cover your butt. Do the labs have any procedures other than following the standard methods to ensure that their analysis is correct? Uh, I'm not aware. I mean, you know, a lot of them should be accredited. So a lot of times this is very by the book. And um, anytime they break down, they're supposed to put qualifiers on your report. So when you get your paperwork back, you look for those things to see if the lab screwed up at all and make sure they inform you. So, yeah, they're pretty by the book. They're in the standard methods. They're not making stuff up as they go. And neither should you. <laughs> so say a system is brand new or a system is kind of just flown under the radar. They're a little small system. They've been discharging for years and they didn't really understand that they needed an MPDS permit. Uh, where do they kind of start to start that process or what would someone need to do? Do you know anything about that? Um, I, you know, you go into uh, the CFR, 40 CFR 136, right? I think. Um, I, I think there are very standard beginner language. The feds have a few um, podcasts and training courses and um, resources available to get started. And I've been to a few back in the beginning and, Every once in a while I see it. So, I mean, I think there's technical assistance out there and whether it's your program, AJ, you know, in the center you work for doing outreach, sometimes you can do the peer to peer re uh, outreach where you're asking other wastewater treatment plants, what do you do? How do you regulate? So you're using your peer group um, or just looking for those resources available online. Of course, everything is internet based now and, and there's quite a bit of literature um and and uh presentations to watch to start a lot of resources a lot of resources yeah that's a good point uh the epa um we do work with them pretty closely and you know that is our goal is to provide that technical kind of assistance uh, but it's good to hear about your experience as well all right then so how do systems report these results to the epa um the move of the federal government and maybe even on some state levels is to go electronic. And so you're taking your raw data, um, you're reviewing it, you're formatting it possibly. And the feds have the central data exchange, which uh, you have to get set up your account set up through the feds. Um, and you have to have a designated role by your municipality, your entity, your tribal government, what have you. Um, you set up an account and usually there's an administrator for the feds, the EPA, that will link your permit or your reporting criteria to the CDX. And then you log in your account and you start doing your monthly, your quarterly, your annual um, reports that are due. Um, not everything's there, but I think gradually 
uh, you'll see the majority, if not the entirety of all re reporting processes online, um, which is really good, but also technically challenging for some folks if they don't have the resources for software packages that may assist them in data analysis or aggregation data or just some way to push your data from one source to another. But um, in my experience, even spreadsheets are simple enough and you can upload and and comment and, and do a lot of um, relatively simple data transfer for your program into the federal database. And like I said, the state has some of those mechanisms too on the drinking water SIDWIS and things like that, I believe, but um, and some solid waste reporting mechanisms um, with some liquid waste, centralized liquid waste reporting mechanisms. Not my field of expertise, but uh, I think there are some online reporting mechanisms for those too. Where That's where we're going. The digital trend is real and you'll still look at paper though at, at your desk. I don't think it's 100% of wood. So uh, I, guess, I guess those channels are there for you to work with and it looks like there's been a lot of work done into that. But are there like templates available for those kind of reports or is it kind of people just make it up their own? How does that work? No, just like we were saying just a minute ago where there's just some training courses, there are some templates. Um, and once your account is created uh, for your reporting mechanisms, the fields are there. You know, so you have to report this metal or chemical oxygen demand. Um, usually you have a field and you're putting in your averages, your seven-day averages, your maximums, whatever they're asking you. Um, so the templates generally are there. Um, your data analysis is on you where you're really trying to look for violations or outliers. Did something fail? And you have to understand your data package before you submit it. So that's where your technical expertise will come into play. And the plug and play aspect of reporting is relatively simple. Okay. And, you know, after you report that stuff or when you do report it, what kind of mechanisms are in place to keep plants honest or to keep um, regulators honest and make sure that they're reporting things correctly? Well, I mean, there is a code of ethics. I like to say we all operate by it. Um, for operators out there, you have an operator license. Um, that's you basically affirming that you are going to um, be truthful and not look for ways to circumvent um, the reporting mechanisms. You know, own it. Sometimes bad things happen, own it. All you can do is fix it. Um, but the consequences are people getting their certifications revoked, uh, being terminated from your job, of course. Um, and in some cases, I've seen entities being taken over or privatized uh, because of negligent or deliberate manipulation um, or falsification of records. So, uh, you know, it's in everybody's interest to try to report honestly because, um, you know, it can be found out, maybe most certainly. And so, you know, it's better to own these things and realize that it gives you an opportunity to get better and fix your problems. So there's some checks and balances. They audit, they look at it, they'll go back. EPA's dealt with us before, but we've gone back and handed over years of data, which has been 
uh, scrutinized and things have been found. And we didn't report dishonestly, but you know, mistakes can be made. So um, I just know that that your your data is there in perpetuity and forever, and they can look it up. Okay, interesting. So it seems like there's a bunch of moving parts within the entities who are treating the water, reporting the data, and then also the EPA themselves who's receiving it, just to kind of make sure that everyone's doing their best to make sure the water is clean. Uh, so outside of the water, though, are there any other regulations that a wastewater treatment plant might be subject to and that you've had experience with? Um, other permits, you mean? What, what are you referring to? I'm thinking, you know, air, groundwater, anything like that that you deal with? Um, I, I think that if you have any of your water that touches the surface, you know, maybe for us, we have places where we have reuse and reinjection. Those are groundwater permits. We definitely have air quality permits because uh, a wastewater treatment plant, um, especially with the cogen, um, is belching some emissions. We have some off gassing from primaries and secondaries. So, you know, we do um, hazardous air pollutant sampling. So there are, we have stormwater uh, protections, uh, SWIPs. So yes, there is cross jurisdictional uh, regulation that can occur to any entity. So, um, you know, obviously for us at a wastewater treatment plant, the majority of our Impact is probably the discharge of water, but it's not the only impact we have. And um, I think there are, you know, organics certainly that can volatilize, turn into a gas, a liquid phase uh, to a gaseous gas phase that you have to be concerned about. Um, those are complex issues. That would be a podcast on its own. And I'm not an expert in that by any means. I just have enough knowledge to know that these are issues. So, well, I mean, it sounds like you're an expert on a wide variety of topics, so we don't expect you to be an expert on everything. Um, but you know, we really appreciate it. Um, I think we're kind of getting ready to wrap up. Um, I guess finally, is there anything that you think a new operator should know about, um, about their MBDS permit or the regulations? Something that you'd recommend that a kind of newbie focus on? I think the first and foremost is, you know, take the time to, read, you know, your regulations, read your permit. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to work with others to discuss um, and put these elements out on the table. Um, it should be common knowledge and, you know, realize that, that whatever you put out water wise is going to be in someone else's glass of water. And, you know, everybody's downstream from someone else. And I think it's something to consider. You are all stewards. You are gatekeepers and your job is one of the most important uh, responders that I know of. And I'm certainly proud of all my wastewater brothers and sisters. Some I think about quite a bit. Awesome. I love the message. I love the environmental uh, stewardship. It's all great. Um, well, we would like to thank you for joining us today, Ben. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up and we've took enough of your time. Um, so we're going to sign off and we appreciate your time. All right. Take care, folks. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes. 